The Behemoth Brewing Company presents the Department of Conversation with Pat Brittenden. Behemoth, give me something hoppy. Off your Kotefano. Welcome back to another edition of the Department of Conversation brought to you by Behemoth Brewery. Behemoth Brewery uh, always loves trying new things, making bigger tasting beers. They've made, gosh, over 240 kinds of beers. Many of them have been small batch and one-offs. They're very, very good at making sort of uh, small batch one-offs uh, entertaining beers. If you go into their website and you have a look at some of the beers they've made, you'll find pictures of like Thelma and Louise done um, by Chirley, who was their monster character. Or you'll find a Donald Trump type one. Uh, I think that one was called Impeach, P-E-A-C-H Mint, the Donald Trump one, which obviously was has a peach flavoring to it as a, uh, as a beer. So check out Behemoth Brewery. Uh, you check them out. You support them. They support us. And that's how the world goes around. Um, I love my movies. In fact, I have to say, I've seen a few movies over the holiday break. I saw uh, the new Ghostbusters movie the other day. Uh, very good. It wasn't, it wasn't 100%. There was a few little things in there, like uh, a bit of a quick review for you. Um, if you watch a new Ghostbusters movie, it's very, it is very good. That's the first thing. So for me, it gets a, a very good rating. You should go see it. The one part about it that I did find was particular, a little bit hard to swallow, was the kids in the movie, pardon me, the kids in the movie go from being non-believers in this kind of spiritual ghost world to not just believers, but also believers who can actively participate in it and know how all the equipment works very quickly. I feel like maybe if you got a look at the director's cut, there'd be a scene or two that they had to cut out for time that would have shown the transition of the kids going from non-believers to accepting and fighting in this kind of ghostly spiritual realm but it's a really good watch you should absolutely check it out it's fantastic i've seen a few other ones now it's always when you sit down here to do the introductions i kind of go now what else have i seen but i've seen a few other ones actually one of the ones i have seen <laughs> what a smooth segue is uh one that's a uh, feature-length documentary that's coming to new zealand cinema screens on the 20th of january called mothers of the revolution uh matthew metcalf is the producer of mothers of the revolution it's a feature length documentary about the greenham woman they began a peace camp protesting the uh, arrival of uh, american nukes and uh, the camp was made up of all women it began in 1981 and ended nearly two decades later and whilst i don't want to spoil some of the surprises in this documentary it is an amazing amazing story it's called mothers of the revolution it's going to be in cinemas on the 20th of january uh, if you're listening to this at some other date in the future google it i'm sure you'll find it on a streaming platform within six months or so but it is an amazing amazing documentary i learned a lot from it it's a real tearjerker but uh, have a look at these mothers who in the early 80s was basically saying in the uk no to the american war machine and you know spoiler alert kind of won in the long run but that's what the documentary is about and how it all uh, works out so Matthew Metcalf was gracious enough to give us some time talking about uh, not only mothers of the revolution but all sorts of things and uh, it was amazing to spend an hour with him and here he is And yes, welcome to the Department of Conversation, producer, writer, actor, Matthew Metcalf. Uh, but Matthew, I see some of that uh, acting credits are, are, are not small. I was going to say small, not small credits. I mean, there's, there's only a few of those, but the producing the, and the writing seems to be the, 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 the vast amount of your work currently within the movie and film industry and television as well. Uh, look, absolutely. I'm very much a producer these days and a writer as well. And the acting is like way back in the rear vision mirror in the distant past. In fact, I think the last time I really significantly acted was, was in a film with Kiefer Sutherland in another lifetime, it feels. Um, not, a bad not a bad name drop, though, just to pull that well, out. It's a good name drop. It's a good name drop. I've, I enjoyed my time with, uh, with Kiefer. He was a, an absolute gentleman. And, um, in fact, my, my Kiefer Sutherland story is this. So we were doing this film, and it was a Vietnam War film, and I played a guy called uh, Captain Frank Steele and I was it's like a mash kind of film. So I was kind of wheeled in on a journey and he was a surgeon and he was operating on me effectively. And um, so what happened is, is that um, there were two cameras that day. Um, and this was a real example to me of Keith's professionalism and skill. Um, the, the director went great take um we'll buy that one and the b camera operator said oh no 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 sorry i missed my marks um keith is going to be out of frame and keith pipes up 
and says, oh, no, 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 no. I saw out of the corner of my eye that you were, uh, that you were tracking differently, so I adjusted my performance. And the director was like, really? So this was a few years ago now where you had to have what they called video playback. So you kind of had to rewind a tape and play it. Yeah. So they rewinded the tape and played it. And sure enough, Kiefer had perfectly adjusted his um, his performance and stayed center frame. And I remember at that moment, that was really, really in my junior years, just been profoundly impressed by that level of professionalism and that level of skill and kind of saying to myself, I want to be like that. I want to be he that skillful. So, I mean, he's obviously vastly experienced. I'm looking at your IMDb right now. Was that A Soldier's Sweetheart, 1998? That's exactly, yep, that's the film. Yeah, but even that, 1998 for him, I mean, he was around, I don't know if he was literally acting in the 70s, but certainly around in the 80s. And so he's a probably a 20-year veteran at that stage, isn't he? So knows what he's doing. Look, absolutely. I mean, it was he was a big star when he came out here. And it was another, it was another lesson to me in, in grace and professionalism. So I had a huge amount of makeup on me. And so I was lying in this, this kind of bed. And so I was meant to be the, the victim of an explosion and bullet wounds. So I had covered in makeup and blood and I had tubes going into me and, and they called lunch. And the first AD came over and said, well, look, uh, look, Matthew, do you mind if you just kind of uh, stay where you are and kind of eat where you are? Because it's quite complicated to disconnect you from everything. And I was very junior and I was like, yes, absolutely. I was just happy to be there. But then, and then the first AD said to Kiefer, oh, well, hey, you know, your lunch will be in your trailer. And Kiefer sits here and goes, no, bring my lunch here. I'll hang with Matthew for the lunch so he doesn't have to um, eat by himself. And I'm like, no, 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 it's fine. I'm all good. Uh, but Kiefer insisted. So he just sat there with me for 45 minutes and shot the breeze. Um, That's amazing. Yeah, I, I was really impressed with the guy. And good stories. It also makes me think about, um, I was seeing an interview the other day with Tom Holland, of course, uh, Spider-Man's done very well through the summer period, as one would expect. Um, and he was talking about wearing... Uh, prosthetics and having to eat lunch. He was literally talking about eating lunch, which is what made me think of it. And he was sitting in a, I think it was on the Graham Norton show, he was sitting on a, a couch with um, Superman, Cavill. Is it Henry Cavill? Is that his name? Uh, um, yeah. And they were talking about being superheroes and um, they were both kind of going, uh, uh, the idea that costume never gives them a zip. And they're talking about a zip to be able to go to the bathroom because it will be seen. So they don't have one. So they have to put up with it. And they were talking about eating lunch. And I'll show you the photo that they showed on that night, which is they, des I don't know if they designed it this way, but they made it so uh, Tom Holland could get a tube through his eye of his Spider-Man suit. Oh, I can see it. Yeah. There yeah. It and that's what, and that's how he, um, that's how he ate. Because obviously, to get in and out of that is probably an hour process, and so I'd stick it. So he was on a liquid diet during that thing, and uh, it just reminded me when you were talking about being in full makeup and having to eat lunch. That's what uh, Tom Holland had to go through for his twenty-five million dollars or whatever it is. I know it's not a hardship for most of us, but uh, yeah, there you go. I was thinking as well. You were talking about the the camera operator saying he was he didn't hit his marks. I heard a story once that some camera operators. If they don't like a scene, they sometimes intentionally will shake the camera. Like, like in other words, they're kind of taking, I know it sounds fairly aggressive, but kind of taking the role of a director and going, this is not working. So they kind of um, sabotage it on purpose. You ever come across that kind of stuff? Look, I am personally, but I think what I would say is, is that, you know, there's a bit of a saying in the film industry, which is we're not putting a person on the moon, but we sure act like we are. <laughs> and so, so what that means is that everyone just takes their job in the film and television industry really seriously. People are very passionate about what they do. People want to do their best work. And so while I haven't personally come across that, I, you know, there's a little part of me that goes, it's possible, you know, um, because people want to do their best work. And so I could imagine that. I'm sure those camera operators wouldn't be the ones that the directors would want to call upon next time if that did, if that did happen somewhere. Um, look, but the reason we've got you on today, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that you've got, you know, Oscar Kiteley's uh, Dawn Raid as a part of your portfolio and lots of other really interesting um, flicks and stuff. That, I don't know, maybe we'll talk about it as we go through. We'll see where we end up. But you do have a, a documentary that has been at the New Zealand Film Festival and is coming into, is it, is it a worldwide release? Is it New Zealand cin cinemas, but on the 20th of January called Mother, Mothers of the Revolution? 
Yes, that's right. Mothers of the Revolution opens in New Zealand on the 20th of January. And actually, we're getting a little bit later. It has started to roll out across the world as we speak. It's, it's already right. out in the world, in fact. I'll put some of this on in the background. Uh, I'll take the noise off it. I mean, sometimes we get pulled off YouTube for doing this sort of stuff. But, you know, you're the producer and we're talking about it. So I'm sure we'll be fine. Um, Mothers of the Revolution, why don't you give us the synopsis? I've, I've seen it. I was lucky enough to get a um, screener and loved it and was really interested in the themes around it. But also, not to um, not to kind of minimize it at all, but when I saw some of the write-ups saying, you know, interviews with Lucy Lawless and all that, I thought, oh, it's a New Zealand production. It really, it really doesn't feel like a New Zealand production. And I'm not saying that as good or bad because it's all based around, you know, women out of England doing this amazing thing for the best part of 20 years. Do you want to just give us, you know, in a minute or two, whatever it is, what the story is? And um, yeah, then I'd love to talk to you about it. Well, look... Um... Uh, very happy to. So look, the first thing is in terms of how I came to this is if you look at my own journey as a producer, I'm attracted to stories that represent the triumph of the human spirit. And I'm often attracted to stories that um, that explore the relationships between, you know, mothers and daughters, mothers and sons, fathers and sons, fathers and daughters, you know, like I'm, I'm very interested in that. And what brought me to Mothers of the Revolution was when I was a child, I was very aware of the Greenham protests because my mum, uh, she's a very staunch feminist, and she imbued me with an understanding and a sense of that. And when I was a child, she was sort of on the fringe of the Greenham protests because Greenham had uh, sort of satellite protests all around the world. And mm. my mum at the time, I can remember having coming home from school and there'd be meetings at my house and, and, uh, and my mum had invited people around and they were talking about these issues. And, and one of the things that I became conscious of as I became older was that the women of Greenham were being portrayed in a really negative light. You know, um, they were sort of presented as vagrants and, and antisocial and that they hadn't really achieved anything. And that sat with me and I found myself going, well, History is funny, isn't it? Because it's very common in history that we talk of a group of people or an individual in one way. And then as time goes on, we look back and we go, well, maybe we had that wrong. Maybe our take wasn't the right take. And I found myself going, you know what, this, this idea that the women of Greenham were just sort of vagrants and troublemakers and achieved nothing, I increasingly was like, that's just wrong. Mm. That's just completely wrong. And then I started to research it, and what I found was, was that the women of Greenham were really brave, and that what they were doing was tough. It was really difficult, the challenge they took on, not only in a, in a physical sense, who wants to live in a tent by an airbase mm. in the middle of an English winter, but that those women had sacrificed family, they had sacrificed their overall relationships, and that some of them, and this is where I got really interested had effectively put themselves behind the Iron Curtain. And for those of us who are old enough to remember, you know, in 19, in the early 1980s, Russia was closed. You know, Eastern Europe was closed. It was a big deal to get in. And these then young women took themselves behind the Iron Curtain on their own volition. They met up with people from the Russian peace movement and they began a dialogue that led directly and contributed directly to to the nuclear missile treaties that helped end the Cold War. And I found myself going, I need to tell this story. I need to celebrate this story. And we need to flip the narrative on Greenham Common, stop presenting them as vagrants and troublemakers and celebrate them for the heroes they are. And that led us to this film. Yeah. And so um, the in the UK, it was announced that, uh, what's, the, what's the, the name of the missiles, the particular kind of missiles that were coming to, to Greenham? Oh, cr uh, cruise missiles. Cruiser, like interballistic yeah. cruise missiles, whatever they're nuclear weapons, yeah. basically. And yeah. they were like, We're not having this, and basically protested for 20 years over it. Obviously, the, the when people see the movie, they'll see the story of the cruise missile successes they had didn't last that long, but there was more that they stayed camping on some level for the best part of best part of 20 years. I think it was 18 or something. Um, yeah. as, as a protest, and as you say, went around the world. And it, I'm interested when you talk about they've been represented poorly because there is that old saying and it's often said in a negative that the winners write the history. 
In other words, you know, the winners, like, like the people who win the walk and whitewash the other people's story because the winners write the history. But it was the women who won. So I'm interested as to why they're portrayed historically negatively because they won. So they should be writing their own history. And maybe your film is a part of that. Well, I think our film is part of that. But I think also, I think there was an institutional resistance for a long time that they did win. I think there was a resistance to acknowledge their achievement because their achievement was not one of a big bang. They didn't clap their hands and suddenly something happened. They didn't have a vote and then legislation was changed. It was a slow, methodical and painful process for them, you know, and it's, you just mentioned something, you know, they, they were there for 18 to 20 years. And when you get to the end of Mothers of the Revolution, it's easy to kind of feel like this whole thing is wrapped up in 90 minutes. But in reality, you have to remind yourself that by the time you're at the end of the story, nearly two decades have passed, you know, so it, it's quite a, it's quite a story. Um, and it's quite a journey these women went, went on. And I think that's why they're not completely acknowledged um, in this way, because there hasn't been a moment that you can just kind of pin it to and go, aha, you know, mm, they did right. that and everyone reacted. It was just a slow and steady wins the race for those women. It, there wasn't a moment like you couldn't see the wall falling in Berlin. There wasn't a particular moment that was on camera, although trucks leaving with missiles on the back of them or planes leaving with that's that was a bit of a moment in the in the film ironically without giving too much away it seems that the women of greenham didn't actually even know that that was their moment as that story yes. is told in the movie that, that 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 was their wall falling and they weren't entirely war, uh, sure that they were watching their wall falling i think that's one of the lovely moments in the in the story <laughs> and i don't want to give that away but that's part of the fun of true storytelling is those little twists and turns that you didn't see coming it starts off in the early 80s, and um, I was intrigued with the language that was used around women's spaces and feminism. And of course, I think it's fair to say without a, a historical understanding completely of the feminist movement, but coming out of the 60s into the early 80s, I mean, you think when was 2009? It feels like it was yesterday. So, so the late 60s would have felt like yesterday in 1981, and a lot of the language that was used then about women's spaces, about the feminist movement, about you know the women doing this, because to make it clear, I'm saying women, 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 only women were allowed in these spaces to camp there. I'm sure men came and came and went, but it was a protest by women for women, for their children and grandchildren and the rest of the world. Um, it intrigued me as to the language and how relevant that felt to today's stories and today's uh protests or whether it's voting rights in america or whether it's you know um the right to to drive in saudi arabia or whatever it is how that's those words still felt as relevant today as they were being used and i think it was 81 but the early 80s when this all started look i mean i think if there's one thing the film shows is that it really thematically speaks to the power of resistance and the power of positive change you know, it's there's this great moment in the film, and spoiler alert here, but you would have seen it, where a, a woman is having her uh, car repossessed, and the yeah. language of the males repossessing is 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 shocking, cringeworthy, and makes you kind of die on the inside as a male. You just find every time I watch it, no matter how many times I see it, I'm like this. I'm like, oh my god, how did anyone think that was okay? Um, <laughs> But I, I mentioned that moment. It's, you just watch the film, you can't miss it. I mentioned that moment because those moments are happening for other people today um, in their worlds. And the real testament of the women of Greenham is the dignity and the class with which they conducted themselves and enacted that positive change. And so you're right to say that that's happening all over the world right now. Um, and I do hope that people see the film, see Mothers of the Revolution, as a sort of a celebration of what's possible and an encouragement. As I said right at the beginning of this podcast, I love to tell stories of the triumph of the human spirit. And I do hope that people see the film through that lens as, as an example of what the human spirit can achieve and what the power of positivity is. Um, I really wanted to also congratulate you on a couple of things. The first is, you know, uh, I, I I get frustrated. Like I like watching documentaries and I like watching, you know, History Channel and Discovery Channel. But when people remake scenes, 
um, it drives me wild. You know, like like when I'm watching a documentary and all the stories being told based on you know things that were filmed last week to represent what happened back then. I I I I, I dislike that style. But the way you guys did it, there were moments where I went, oh. Like I, I didn't notice the transition to when you were showing when you had made content. Sorry, I say the word content because I do podcasts. But when you had made content to tell the story versus when you were showing original pictures, obviously you can because there's a, a quality, as in uh, you know, quality of film uh, difference. But I wanted to congratulate you because that was so seamless that it didn't distract from the story. And I think for me, that's when I see those remakes, I get distracted. Whereas the way you did it was was brilliant and there were moments where i was kind of going oh hang on okay we're back okay well, now we're back again and i didn't notice the transition so that was brilliant and well done and not to not to sound patronizing like the non-filmmaker here but it was it was brilliant and genius and i and i wanted you to know that um from someone who doesn't like watching those things when you slice in pre-made stuff it, it was really it was really well done and it was um seamless well, look, I- I agree, and I really got to give a shout out to Brian March, the director, and and Leela Menon, my fellow producer, um, you know, who both led the charge there. And I think they put so much work into those recreations, which is what we call them. Um, and they did such a beautiful job. And I think everyone was very pleasantly surprised at the distribution level when they saw them, um, yeah. how how good a job they've done. But it, there was. Um, it wasn't an accident that they looked that good. It was just weeks and weeks and weeks of work and prep went into doing those. So, um, yeah, absolutely. Thank you for saying that. Oh, no. And like right at the start, when you're seeing the, the women in the kitchen having the conversation around going for a walk, you know, that, that's on a start. It took me a moment to kind of go, oh, okay, so we do have some recreations of this. Like it did take me a moment. And then when I saw it, I was like, okay, it's a recreation, but it was so similar. It was. Yeah, and then that happens all the way through. It's great. And at one stage, like, it even happens like I'm watching a movie script. I can't remember the exact moment, but I think there was a moment where it went from an external shot of a tent into the internal shot of the tent back to the external. And the internal, I think, was the recreation, but the two externals were not. And it's like, it, it was, yeah, anyway, it was great. Really, really good. And really, it was really impressive and, and certainly helped tell the story and helped stop at least this ADHD loser from being distracted by what I was, what I was watching. The other thing was, it's obviously, as we just saw looking at the, um, looking at the trailer, there's a New Zealand film commission logo there. So it's a New Zealand made film. But when I saw the, uh, the promo talking about Lucy Lawless saying this and, you know, Titify Harawera and, and various people like that, I'm like, Oh, it's a Kiwi, but you know, being based in England, the, the story where Green and Common was, um, very, it's very international. And I, it's, it's, I was surprised not to say that, oh, you know, Kiwis can't make international product, but uh, I, I thought I, I thought I was going to be looking at a New Zealand story and it really was an international story. Um, and it, yeah, it was, it was, it was telling a global story. And, and I, I wonder if that's more difficult. Is it more difficult to tell the global story from New Zealand or from, a, from New Zealanders or is it easier because there's more resources to do it? Look, definitely not more resources. Um, I think it's this. I think as New Zealanders, we are a small country. Traveling is part of what we do. And we look outwards, you know, as a people. Um, we, we are a seafaring nation. We are a, a nation uh, who looks, listens, and considers the world around us. And it's no different with our filmmaking. And certainly the core group of filmmakers on this movie we all felt that there was a real relevance to New Zealand. Like, you know, New Zealand's, that, that this story related to our anti-nuclear stance. Yeah, it sure. related to our stance on apartheid. It, it related to our stance on so many things. And we wanted to, to really show in a way the world that as New Zealanders, we could see that the story needed to be told and that the women of Greedham needed to have the narrative flipped. And we're very grateful for the fact that a lot of people in New Zealand agreed with that argument and got behind us. Have you, um, have you, are you guys doing, have you had a, a screening in the area? Are they, like in the Greenham area, has that happened or is it going to happen? Well, look, a lot, a lot of the women who were able to came to the London Film Festival screening, which was uh, back in October. So right. we would have loved to have been there, but in these days of no travel, we, we couldn't be. 
But um, by all accounts, it was a very moving evening. And um, I'm delighted uh, that um, some of the women uh, who were talked to in the film and were there at the camp were able to attend that night. I know it was a great moment for them. Um, I, I agree with you about the connection to New Zealand, even though it seems to be telling an international story, because all I was thinking all the way through was things like the Springbok tour of 81 and what was going on in this country at the same sort of time. So I, 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 I think that is is clear and, and as you say you know um i think they were talking you talked about bikini atoll in the film and i was thinking yeah. Atoll and rainbow yeah. warrior and yeah so it seems that this really is an international story with a very tight new zealand connection although it's a story about english english or british women um in the early 80s as well yeah it's really it's really interesting um i think now correct me if i'm wrong because i was watching a streaming version of this from nbc so i couldn't kind of skip back which i wanted to do was it said in the documentary that at the time of the protest there was three tons or tons per person of nuclear weapons or nuclear activity around the world? I was thinking there was a there was a there was a, a, a figure mentioned as to how many nuclear weapons there were per person around the world. Do you know or recall what that was? I, I actually what don't. What it was then and what it is today, do we do we know that? Has, has this opened up your eyes to you know looking at the, the world of nukes today? Or do you kind of put this on the shelf as a job done, move no, on to No, look, next? I mean, well, firstly, if you're like me and you're in your 40s, you should be old enough to remember that there was a time when the greatest existential threat in the world was nuclear weapons. Um, it's 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 easy to forget. We, we, we have a society today kind of almost, it's not that we've laid nuclear weapons to rest, but we've kind of moved on to other existential crises. But lest we forget that the ability exists within the world to destroy us all multiple times over. You mm -hmm. know, we can turn ourselves into dust with just remaining cockroaches several times over for good measure with what's out there. And that hasn't gone away. Um, and that was another reason. When I was a little boy, nuclear weapons were scary. Yeah. You know, I've got this distinct memory of being in English class and, you know, in English class, when you're a little kid, you often, you know, drawing comes into it and stuff like that. And we were asked to draw a story about something that was scary to us. And uh, myself and I feel like about half the class drew pictures of nuclear missiles. Wow. Like that, that's what we thought when we were eight or something was the scariest thing in the world. Um, and it's important to know that hasn't gone away. That's a very real existential threat that exists every day uh, for this planet. And I was just talking to, um, I've been talking to people in the last wee while about Taiwan and China. And one of the interesting things is I, I talked to a politician last year and the conversation that they mentioned was, you know, China is saber rattling at the moment around China. And one of the fears being, if China did go towards Taiwan in a kind of aggressive way, what would the US do? Would they step in? Would they not? And then you kind of think too, because we've, I, I don't think we've ever had, I mean, there was the Cold War and there was the threats around Cuba, the Bay of Pigs, that sort of thing. But with, has there ever actually been two powers that are nuclearly capable going at it? I don't know if there has been. So what, well, whatever well, that would well, mean. There's some quite famous examples of, the world coming very close. There was a um, there's a famous example in the 80s uh, around West Germany where um, NATO conducted a very large scale military exercise called Abel Archer, mm -hmm. and in Abel Archer they maneuvered their forces very very close to the East German border, and due to a whole lot of things going on, there was a belief that um, there was going to be um, a, a peremptory attack on the Warsaw Pact countries and uh, people really got hot under the collar and there was a genuine fear that, that a war was going to start. And, and it so could have, you know, one of the things that was interesting in the research for this was when the cold war ended and many of the military strategists retired and when some of them were released from their uh, military secret obligations, one of the things that some of them talked about, was that they, as their job, had to construct scenarios of what you call low-yield, winnable nuclear wars. Right. And that these guys nearly, and they're all basically exclusively male, 
were literally feeling like they were losing their sanity because they were their job was to construct scenarios where nuclear wars were winnable and where you wrote off several major cities in your country as the collateral damage of winning Man. you know and that that was just moving into some kind of uh, bizarre apocalypse of the mind where you had to process that um, and so again you come full circle back to the idea that you know nuclear weapons are a very very dangerous phenomenon that's very very real in our world unless we forget that you know, it's well documented that human beings are not very capable of processing size and scale beyond a certain point, you know? Yeah. So we, we think of a nuclear weapon being dropped on a city and we go Hiroshima and Nagasaki. We've all seen the footage as kids in school and we go, yes, that would be terrible. Failing to understand that, you know, they were tiny, itsy wincy little nuclear weapons by comparison to what's out today. You know, you've got yields now that are 100, 1,000 times greater than those weapons. You know, one nuclear weapon that could wipe Los Angeles off the map. Um, it, it's really important for us to remember that, that, that that's out there right now um, and that we should care about it because it's very, very real. I remember um, probably in the early 2000s watching The Daily Show with John Stewart, who was you know, the, he was the jester that could speak truth to power like no one else during that daily show run. Um, and he used to talk about North Korea or he would talk about other places that perhaps had nuclear capabilities, but he always talked about self-preservation and his position. And, I, and, and I'm paraphrasing, I guess I'm, I won't say his position in case I'm, I'm not 100% right, but the vibe I got from it was you also have to have sort of a madman or woman, the case may be, involved as well because, you know, you send nukes towards los angeles then you know three times the nukes are coming back towards you and how strong that um feeling of self-preservation is for you and your people i don't i don't know if that makes any difference today because there's also that kind of feeling that if you got them you want to use them at some stage but i i would hope that self-preservation when we're talking about that sort of scale destruction might be something that would kick in and um help help out the world this this was the argument, of course, and it talks about in the film of what they called mad or mutually assured destruction. Yeah. That was kind of the, the idea of uh, that peace was kind of guaranteed by mad or mutually assured destruction during that kind of peak time of the Cold War. Look, I think I think you can both, um, you know, we often exist in a binary world these days, but in truth, things can run in parallel or side by side. I think you can kind of see that uh, that concept of mutually assured destruction has kind of kept a few things in check um, while also acknowledging that it would be preferable to not have to keep it in check at all. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think we would all la- rather live in a world where there were no nuclear weapons. Um, I think we would all rather live in a world knowing our children will never, ever face that kind of existential threat. Um, but... Uh, you know, it, it, it's a big issue. And if, and if this film just helps shine a light on it again and just remind people that it's important to talk about it, it's important to discuss it, it's important to just be aware of it, then that's got to be a good thing. Um, something else, another theme that I got out through your movie was ironically something that I, I, I worked as a talkback host on Newstalk ZB for the best part of a decade. And I remember it was during uh, the Iraqi war and after 9-11 and those things were still going on. And I remember doing a night of talkback um, on terrorism and on terror and asking the question, what country in the world is causing the most terror right now? You know, who are the terrorists? And kind of challenging the listener to think about what hand does America have to play in the terror being brought to the world right now? Um, you know, under this this veil of we're bringing freedom. Um to which, of course, as you would expect, got a lot of pushback <laughs> from a news talk ZB audience. But, but when you in the movie, kind of, you, you touch on that as well quite a lot because you talk about you know what's happening in and behind the Iron Curtain, what's happening on the ground in the, the UK. I'm trying to think of a way not to give too much away, but you do look at perspectives from from kind of activists within both countries, looking at the other side, thinking we don't want them to bomb us. So it's just because the Americans 
and I guess I'll say the allies and put our hand up because we sort of appear to be a part of them, um, are wearing the white hats doesn't necessarily mean they're the, the good guys every time. Look, you know, uh, um, I think one of the things that I, I remember is, and I think this is speaking to this, is, you know, when I was a boy, uh, Sting released a song and the lyrics were, believe me when I say to you, I hope the Russians love their children too. And, and that spoke to this idea, this belief that existed in the West at the time that sort of perhaps uh, Russia and the Warsaw Pact countries were hell bent on having a go at the West. And then the wall came down and the archives opened up and a lot of historians went in. And one of the things that they were a bit shocked to discover, and it's funny that we say shocked because it shouldn't be surprising really, is that all the documents revealed that, you know, Russia and the Warsaw Pact countries were not hell bent on uh, having mm -hmm. a war with anyone. In fact, they were doing their damnedest to not have that and were busy going, what the hell's going on with the West? Why are those guys so crazy? And so the answer to Sting's question was, I hope the Russians love their children too, was I've certainly always believed, I'm sure they do. I know they do. You know, um, I don't think for a second that they want uh, these things to happen. So, um, you know, there's certainly since I became a father, I've, I've felt that idea all the more, you know, parents love their children around the world, uh, irrespective of, of, of cultural place. Yeah. And um, uh, it's a good thing to remind yourself of that whenever we're thinking of the other side. Yeah, a bit of a dirt moment of their parents. Do they, the parents love their kids? Well, of course. Why would they be any different? It did make me think as well, and I don't know if you're the same, but when I find myself investigating or looking into or, you know, researching something historically, it always brings up questions of what's happening now. And I wonder if through your process of making this documentary, um, you have an opinion or a perspective on, you know, who was the threat? Well, I guess we're kind of saying there was a couple of threats now and, and versus today, who is who is the threat today, like to the world? Who was the threat to um, to bring sort of the world into chaos today? Did that ever come up in conversations around the, uh, around the planning table? Look, you know, the complex stuff here, complex stuff, very murky pond to wade into. Look, I think <laughs> at a personal level, I think one of the... Uh, one of the threats today in the world is a return to, to nationalism, um, mm. a return to economic nationalism and a return to just simple nationalism. I think whenever we uh, turn our backs on our neighbours, whenever we look inwards, whenever we believe that somehow we're better than others, history shows that it never turns out so well. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't work out well. I did a film called Capital in the 21st Century, and there's a great line from one of the contributors in that film where it said, blaming your neighbor will not make you any richer. Blaming yeah. your neighbor will not make your life better. And I really, re I really remember that because I think it's a very profound statement to remind oneself of. You know, um, So if you, if you come back to the question, what are the threats in the world right now? Blaming our neighbors um looking uh you know thinking that we'll be better off if we take from others uh, that never works you know that never works we work best when we work together as a as a world oh i agree and i also think there's always two ways to look at something you know i think as you're telling that story i think about your neighbor and i think about uh, maybe this is going back to my zb days when these conversations were common talking about people moving to new zealand and you know you hear that typical kind of um conversation by some about people being a part of the community and joining our community my response to them was always well have you opened the door you know it's a lot easier to be a part of the community if you're invited in if you're the stranger sitting in the corner of the room if you're the wallflower and the room ignores you it's very hard to get involved whereas if you're the wallflower the new person the unknown and the room welcomes you it's a lot easier to be integrated so the i, I used to say to people um you know if you want everyone to be you know part of the same team or if you want if you want everyone to be the same because i mean why can't x be like us or whatever that can happen one of two ways you can either open the door and invite them in to be like you quote unquote or you can be like them you know it works both ways you get the same outcome whichever way you look at it um yeah so i'm always i'm always in favor in these situations of opening the door and 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 bringing people in and inviting them and making the path easier look you, you make a really important point you know one of the great privileges of what i do 
especially when I make feature documentaries, is for a moment in time, a moment in my life, I really involve myself in another life, in another community, in another group of people. And it's one of the, I want to say it again, it's one of the great privileges that I have enjoyed in my life is because for that moment, for that time, I'm welcomed into another household, so to speak. It's a metaphorical yeah. household, you know, whether it's, you know, IndyCar racing, Formula One racing, whether it's mountaineering, whether it's conflict, um, whatever it is, you're welcomed into a whole other world for a moment. So you're absolutely right to say there's nothing like welcoming people in and opening yourself to being welcomed in for that matter. Um, it always makes you come away with a greater appreciation of, of, of the grandeur of our world and all, and all the good things that can come from it. Um, you know, I've had some really amazing experiences, you know, like I was once in uh, Ramallah for work in, in the West Bank and you know, and we went and ordered a, uh, uh, like a, a falafel, you know, pita bread kind of thing, you know, and um, I was with my cameraman and we're having this and we're both, and it cost us one US dollar each and we're sitting there munching away and we're both kind of like, yum, 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 saying to each other, my God, this is so good. Like, this is just so fresh, so good. And then we're just looking around us and there's, we suddenly realize there's like wrecked cars because this is during the second intifada. And so there's like, there's wrecked cars and like bombed up buildings. And all of a sudden we're just going, look at this world. You know, like we're having the greatest falafel we've ever had. And we're just, we're just enjoying that moment. And, but, but it comes from this world. And look at this nice little, this, this piece of positivity, this piece of humanity in amongst all of this, you know, kind of sadness and destruction. Mm. And it was just, just a reminder of, that there's richness in the world everywhere. You know, um, there was another time, I don't want to sound like it's my greatest hits of travel, but I was in <laughs> Afghanistan also working and I ended up in this village and this little boy, God, he, he can't have been more than five, just appears out of nowhere and starts talking to me and I'm chatting away to him and how are you and what is your name? And he's telling me that he likes soccer and, you know, and, he, and that, he, that he's into these kind of things and, and he's asking me about what I do. And then it only occurred to me like about an hour later, because bearing in mind, I'm in Afghanistan, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm in this remote village. And suddenly I'm like, he was talking English to me. Like, how did that happen? Yeah. <laughs> like, it never even occurred to me that he was speaking to me in flawless English. And, and it really left me with this really profound impression. of. So I wanted to know, what was his background? What do his parents do? How is he five years old? in a remote part of Afghanistan, but he speaks flawless English, mm. you know, and, and I was just ignorant about it. I didn't even stop and ask. Um, I just took it for granted. And those little moments, I remember them because they're great lessons. You know, they're great lessons in, in, in just in showing a little bit of humility to the world around you and a reminder that everyone has a life story behind them and everyone comes with a journey. And um, it's good to keep that in perspective. It, it reminds me of something you've already said in this conversation, which is that we don't do numbers very well. You know, we don't do scale very well. I also don't think we do other people's experience very well. You know, whether it's, and I mean, you know, whether it's wondering what, you know, country X is going through or person Y is going through. You know, I remember I studied at a, at a college in Northland for a while and it was a live-in college and we used to complain about the food every single day. It was, it was atrocious, you know, we and then I went and did a week, two weeks whatever, 10 days work experience while I was at this village, uh, sorry, while I was at this um, college at, in Vanuatu. And Vanuatu, we lived in the villages and worked in the villages. And, you know, you'd see the boys running into the water, uh, pulling the nets out, getting the fish, which looked to me like a sprat, but a small fish, literally just jamming it on the stick and putting it in the fire. And when we got back, even though that was you know, delicious, fresh food, but when we got back to the, the college in Northland, there was never a complaint about the food again because the perspective that watching how other people did it um gave us a, a new understanding of the luxuries we had in our little first world you know lovely place in northland and um as you're talking as well and i know it's i know top gear is maybe not the bastion of documentary uh content but i watched uh the bethlehem special again the other i love i, I love the specials you know, kind of what a grand tour has become for people who watch it. Um, 
but I watched the Bethlehem special again the other day where they land in Iraq and have to basically drive through Syria, over through Jordan, then down into it. And like I said, not, not to say that this is the bastion of documentary accuracy, but they were in a northern part of Iraq. They were wearing flak jackets and helmets, driving convertible cars, and they were looking around and there was kids in playgrounds and they were sitting at a, at a cafe eating and they just went, I'm not wearing this anymore because for that time at that moment, at least the, the way they're telling the story, it felt safe and it felt real, whereas it was a time where every headline we see about Iraq was you know war torn you know guerrilla war uh, terrorist bombs, and they were sitting in a northern part of Iraq, which was safe and sort of having a lovely time. It was a completely different perspective. Look, um, that really relates to the story I was saying about you know um, being in Ramallah, and I've had numerous experiences like that. I, I've had the the privilege, and it is a privilege, through my work to go into. I've been into Iraq twice um, when the war was going on. And and amongst all of this terrible things going on, I was invited to to family lunches, you know, and and there were kids who were just playing and people sharing their food when they didn't have much, mm. and it's and it's again it's a remarkable lesson in in humility, and and in keeping a sense of perspective. Um, we live in a very uh, I don't want to sound like I'm going off on a self help book here, but but we do live in a very consumer driven society. We do live in a, a society where there's an awful lot of, uh, you know, haves for many people. Um, and sometimes when my work affords me the privilege again to see what other people don't have and to see how some people live their life, I think, you know, one of the most eye-opening experiences I had was uh, when I was working in India, you know, and I remember going to the slums where they shot Slumdog Millionaire, the actual slum, right, where, wow. they, where, they, where they shot that. And it was kind of presented in the film as being kind of the bottom of the bottom. And when I got there, everyone wanted to invite me in for a cup of tea. They were very clean, very well swept and looked after. And sort of the person taking me through was sort of explaining, oh, this is really middle-class accommodation. You know, like right, this is wow. people who work in banks. These are bank clerks, government officials. Etc. And then, what you what, then what you see is is the really heartbreaking side of it is you see people living on rubbish tips, you know. You see people living in cardboard boxes. You see families living in cardboard boxes, and it just really gives you a sense of perspective that you know when things aren't going well for you, you know, in your own life, you just got to kind of check yourself and go, you know what? There's people in the world right now that would step over broken glass to trade places <laughs> yeah. with me in a heartbeat yeah you know and i just gotta i just gotta remember that you know i, I don't know like um I, I try and i'm sure i fail at this a lot but i do try to remind myself just to be gracious before life you know and and again mothers of the revolution is a little bit of of, of doing that it's it's trying to be gracious before others who have done much much more it's trying to shine a light on people who have made far greater sacrifices than I ever have. Um, it's people whose contribution to the betterment of the world is far greater than I'm undoubtedly will ever achieve myself. And you've got to come at those stories with a, with a healthy dose of graciousness and willingness to just step back and go, it's not about me, it's about them. Yeah. And I'm really here to shine a light on them. I think it's ironic that a Hollywood movie, uh, you know, Slumdog Millionaires, couldn't actually show the real slums. If that was one step too far, even for them, they had to show the middle class area. Because I had a, um, I, I actually I haven't played it played it out yet. I had a I had a um a guy on the other day who talked about the world couldn't sustain a middle class like America lives it. Like America lives a middle class that's so opulent compared to the rest of the world. There's not enough resources in the world for every country to be a middle class like the Americans are middle class. So I wonder if there's any conversations around the slum dog millionaire that that we've got to at least show. I mean, their, their middle class out of India is certainly slummy enough for us to make it look like it's the worst place in the world rather than having to go to the actual slums. I did want to ask you, though, as well, you said um, about how much of an honour it is to get invited into people's homes. And you've done both sort of non-fiction and fiction. You've done both sort of film and television. What do you, you personally, what do you enjoy doing most of all? Do you have some something that if you have an option for two or three different opportunities, you, you gravitate towards one because you enjoy it more than the other? Oh, look, I tend to, God, for, 
I think I tend to gravitate, gravitate towards the hard stuff for <laughs> some foolish reason. Look, uh, as I said, my work has afforded me the most wonderful opportunities to explore aspects of life. And uh, I tend to gravitate towards the stories that, that allow me to do that and give me the opportunity to ex- explore that, you know, and, and that's, um, that's again, a real privilege. You know, I, I did a film a couple of years ago called six days, which is about the Iranian embassy siege. Yep. And I, just remember sitting in a room with a, with a couple of the guys that were in the the SAS on the, on that raid and whatever your politics are whether you you know pro military anti military you can sort of put that aside because for that moment I was just I was in the room with people who lived history you know in hundreds of years time that will still be a recognized important moment in history and I got to be just just to just be part of that for a moment and to hear mm. those people and to hear their point of view and their perspective. And that's a, that's a good thing, you know? So to answer your question, I tend to kind of find myself moving towards the films and the stories where I get to learn from others, where I get to hear from others, where I get to, you know, experience something, you know, when I was um, doing the Scott Dixon film, Born Racer, I was at the Indy 500 and um, I, I ran into someone I knew who worked for the McLaren racing team because they were running that year. Right. And I knew the McLaren people because I'd made the McLaren film. So, and they sort of looked at me and they held up the pass that I had around my neck. And I had like, a, a, like an access all areas kind of pass. And they said, how did you get this pass? And I'm like, I don't know. They gave it to me. And they're like, we're McLaren. We don't have this pass. I said, well, what do you mean? And they said, this pass allows you to go everywhere. You can go into any team, any place. You wow. can go anywhere. And it was just, again, one of those moments where I'm like, I'm at the Indianapolis 500, the biggest one-day sporting event in the world. About 350,000 people turn up. And, and my job has afforded me the privilege to go anywhere I want, you know, and explore the race like no one else can. And, again, these are just really wonderful things to have in your life you know it's it's a one-day thing it only lasts for a moment but it's it's an incredible thing to do um uh, there's been so many stories like that my work has has afforded me where i've just been able to just kind of sit and, and talk to people you know speaking to the women who um who went behind the iron curtain on mothers and just hearing the story firsthand you know, not not filming it for the movie, but just in a conversational sense. Um, and, you know, and one of the women now lives in, you know, in, in Central Europe. She's not really involved in the protest movement anymore. And she's so humble about it. And then when she gets talking, you're like, oh, my God, I can't believe the life you've lived. I have found myself several times on the call going, hang on, whoa, whoa, whoa. Stop for a second. Just rewind. Tell me that again. You yeah. did what? And she's just telling me the most incredible stuff. And she's just so humble about it. And that's, that's one of the wonderful things of this job and, and why I tend to kind of move to certain films over others. It's, it's that desire to involve them yourself in, in that storytelling. I wrote down a quote. Um, well, I, I wrote something down. Sorry. When I say I wrote down a quote, it meant to sound more important than it is. I wrote something down when I was watching your documentary. Now, I don't know whether this is something that's in the back of my head that I've heard elsewhere or whether I came up with it, it was original. And that's um, that comfort is the enemy of progress. Because I, I literally thought about the women in the tents outside, uh, you know, an airbase for 20 years being uncomfortable. And I thought about being uncomfortable, both metaphorically stepping outside your comfort zone, but also physically being uncomfortable. And I thought comfort is the enemy of progress. It's where we are happy with what we've got. We're happy with our lot. So why push the boundaries? And I started a conversation with someone I was watching the documentary with was where's all the protests today? Cause it feels like the eighties, especially in the Western world was a, a big place for protest. You know, we've already talked about, you know, the uh, spring box or, you know, um, whatever atoll we're on at the moment or the rainbow warrior or what's happening over there. And other than the, maybe my naivety is showing here it feels like maybe more developing countries and places that 
don't have maybe the same rights, et cetera, that we have right now are places where protests, I mean, of recent times, I'm thinking about the Arab Spring and that kind of thing as well. But I guess in America as well, there's still lots of protests going on over um, things like reproduction rights at the moment and, you know, um, various bits and pieces. Does it, I, I remember when the Christchurch quakes happened, it's a bit of a tangent, I'm sorry. When the Christchurch quakes happened, we all started going, I never realized there could be so many quakes. And as soon as you do some research, it's this numbers thing, you find out that there's 1.3 million quakes on the planet Earth every single year, that even though 10,000 quakes to an isolated group of people in one area is horrific and feels like it's never ending, compared to the 1.3 million that there are every single year, it's, 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 you know, it's, it's, it's expected. So we're not seeing necessarily the protests in New Zealand at the moment. Does that mean they're still happening? Where are the protests? Where are we too comfortable? Where is the discomfort that we need to make sure the next generation or the next 10 years or the next 20 years, we don't lose something that we currently are taking for granted? A bit long-winded, but there's some thoughts for you. I think it's a good thought. I think perhaps another way to, if I could sort of give it back to you, is that I think it's behoven on all of us to remind ourselves that our individual lived experience isn't necessarily, and in fact, is almost certainly not the lived experience of others. You know, I mean, empathy is an important attribute of being human. It's important to remind ourselves and to check ourselves that just because we might be having an okay situation or be comfortable or where we want to be, that that doesn't mean that others are. And it's equally important to remind ourselves that life is not necessarily fair. In fact, it's damn unfair to many yeah. people. You know, many people start so far behind the start line. It's a life achievement just to get to the start line. And it's really important to remember that. So when we think about protesting, it's important to not, and this comes back to what we tried to achieve, all of us in the team for mothers, is that just because it's okay for you doesn't mean that it's okay for someone else. You know, just because you're doing good doesn't mean that everyone's doing good and that we live in a better society when we all kind of listen and acknowledge that other people might need a leg up, that other people might need a helping hand Mm. or our empathy and our understanding. And that, you know, and I find that in my experience, and I'm by no means represents the world, but most people are kind of naturally in their own little way. They want to fix, fix things for themselves. You know, forgive the cliche, you know, most people don't want a hand, a hand out. They want a hand up, you know, most people take great pride in achieving for themselves. They just want a little bit of understanding, you know? And so I think when it comes to protest, I'm not an expert on protest, but if I'm honest with myself, I look around, you know, there's, there's plenty of stuff going on in New Zealand that needs a dressing and that needs a light shining, uh, you know, shone on it. And that it's important that we do that. Do you think you say that that there's a lots in New Zealand that needs addressing? Do you think that in on mass we're too comfortable at the moment that we need to get a bit more uncomfortable with those things that need addressing? I just think there's, there's, un, there's unquestionably inequality in New Zealand. You know, there's, there's inequality, there's inequality of, of outcomes and inequality of opportunity. Right. And we always need to, to work on that and, and do what we can to address it. The world will never be perfect. Mm. It's the nature of, of how we live that it will always be slightly flawed, deeply flawed probably. But it doesn't mean we shouldn't always be trying. You know, I have a particular feeling of skin in this game because I, I, I grew up um, below the official poverty line. And... I didn't know that that was normal at the time, you know, I only, I, or abnormal, I should say. I, you know, at the time, I just knew it for what it was and that things were tight and difficult. But I raised that because the state, the country, the nation afforded me opportunities. It educated me. It allowed me to go to university. It gave me medical coverage. You know, it, 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 it helped me do things to get on in the world. And I, and I, I often look back and remind myself that whenever I'm thinking about this, I have to say to myself, well, look, Matthew, the state afforded you many, many things. And it's important that we live in a society that can provide opportunities to others. 
that yeah. that can allow others to kind of um, to advance and and bring the community with them. That's just really important. Um, it's, that, again, it's that idea of not going up the ladder and pulling it up behind you, you know, leaving it there for other people as well. Well said. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Hey, last question, um, and not to give away some of your content from your movie too much, but I was interested in one of the quotes that uh, Lucy Lawless said. Um, she said that we're at a tipping point now. And that intrigued me because I thought probably in 1981 they were saying we're at a tipping point. And probably before that, you know, after, you know, it, uh, maybe in the Korean War, someone said we're at a tipping point and probably before world war two, they probably said we're at a tipping point. Who knows? Maybe even in the Boer war, they said we're at a tipping point for what's happening around the world right now. And I was interested in your thoughts around that comment. I was interested as to why that was included. Not, not that it shouldn't be because it feels like we've always been at a tipping point when, or how is it actually going to tip or when are we going to be able to say, Oh no, things are fine. Well, I, look, I think it's interesting that um, when you reference to those historical points where they're talking about tipping points, that a good many of those examples given were wars. Yeah. And I think, um, I suspect what Lucy was saying was, you know what? If you don't, if you don't listen to ourselves, if we don't learn the lessons of history, we're doomed to repeat them. And even primary school children know that some of the lessons of history aren't great. Yeah. You know, we definitely don't want to go there again. Um, so I, th I think that's what Lucy was referring to. And I think there's a real, real truth there, you know, like uh, the world has shown that over and over again, we keep doing the same things um, and we don't want to do that. No, and I think the point you just made was really fair, because actually, if I put a different hat on and think about something else, perhaps in 2008, people were saying, like, let's say for, for something that's non-war, let's say for marriage equality people were probably saying we're at a tipping point in 2008. And then whatever it was, 2011 or 2012, whatever the date was, uh, that's where the tipping point leveled off and, and we got there. So yeah, fair, fair, really fair point. I guess I was thinking about the wars because I was thinking about the, the subject matter of the film as we bring it back to it being about kind of nuclear disarmament and that sort of thing. But yeah, I guess other areas of protest or other areas of concern for the world, um, we have seen there being tipping points and then those tipping points be overcome to be the norm. So yeah, fair point. Yeah. Um, the film, you call it a film and it's a documentary, the documentary, yeah, it's the a film, film. It's, it's a film. It's a film. Yeah. It's a film. Mothers of the revolution in cinemas nationwide. So people will see it in every center, wherever they want to do it on the 20th of January. That's right. And it's a, it's a damn good watch. I'm biased, but it's a damn good watch. Well, I'm not biased and it's a damn good watch. So, um, it's a really interesting and and and, and uh, for me, even though I I knew what it was about, um, you know, I'd got all the the press handouts and stuff, but I was still surprised with the some of the content of it and what it was. So I think people should go along, um, looking to be educated, inspired as well. Inspiration will be inspired by that. There's a moment at the end, and I won't, I will not release this, obviously, but there's a moment at the end where a particular world leader is talking about a particular situation that certainly. Um, brought a tear to my eye without question you know there's 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 moments in there of inspiration and of you know adulation and of i don't know if you go through a roller coaster whilst you're watching it it's uh it's a fantastic flick um in cinemas nationwide the 20th are you uh as a producer do you start thinking about where after that like after that because no one seems to sell dvds anymore maybe i'm wrong does it does it go to a streaming platform by the end of the year or what's the what, yeah, what happens then? end up on um I think DVD is still in use in some places in the world. I know in America and in the UK, it still sells quite a lot, but it goes on to streaming platforms. It goes on to, you know, iTunes, various, you know, Amazon, various streaming platforms, and eventually it will end up on free-to-air television. Yeah. Um, it just follows a, a journey, slightly different to how it used to, but sort of the same in a way as well. Yeah. Yeah. So what you're looking at is the um, New Zealand film international film festival page but if you look up mothers of the revolution if you google that you'll find your local listings uh come january 20th when you can check it out at your place and you certainly should because it's a brilliant watch and a brilliant film a writer and producer matthew, matthew metcalf matthew thanks for joining us man. i really appreciate it I, i'm i'm stoked you came on board with this crazy thing we do and you know not just the three minute 
interviews that you'll get on the radio about your product, but got a chance to talk about all sorts of stuff and all at the same time whilst flexing those stamps in your passport, which was fun to hear. <laughs> yes, I miss it. I used to complain about all the travel and now I miss it. Uh, okay, well, one more question, even though I said we're wrapping up. What's next? Are you off somewhere? Are you traveling somewhere? What's the next documentary? What's the next project? Well, the next uh, the next uh, documentary that will come out that I produce is um, based upon the global bestseller, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a... I don't know if we can swear on this show. Um, you can find swear if you want. Okay. The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck by Mark Manson. It's sold uh, over 14 million copies worldwide. It's been a number one New York Times bestseller for five years now. And it's been sitting in the New Zealand top 10 for years. Um, we have adapted that into a film. Um, actually sitting on my computer right now is a link for me to actually go and have a look at the final, final, final version before cool. I send it off. And um, that's a really exciting film. It's a lot of fun. It's very moving. And that'll be in cinemas next year. So look out for it. Appreciate your time, Matthew. Uh, January 20th, Mothers of the Revolution. Check it out. And obviously... Keep an eye on uh, the work of Matthew, Matthew Metcalf as it comes out over the forthcoming weeks, months, and years as well. Matthew, thanks for joining us. Pleasure, mate. Absolutely.